Turn with me to John chapter 12, please. John chapter 12. There is given to the under shepherds of the church, that is the pastors and the teachers of Christ's church, a very sacred duty. It's an, it's an important one. It's a duty based in the simple and sad fact that there are many who sit in church buildings who are unregenerate, who are not saved. They're lost people. They're either fooling themselves or they're trying to fool others about their actual salvation status. They may have demonstrated some external behavioral change, but there has been no heart change. God has not changed their heart yet. Now, I tend to think that in most cases, this involves self-deception. This is a person who's learned the Bible, has been taught the Bible, has sung the songs, has been a part of the church culture, and yet something is missing. Something's not there. One obvious indicator that I've pointed out before from 1 John, the first letter of John, not the gospel, is that the unregenerate ultimately do not have a genuine love for, other, for, for believers. They, they may cover this. They may even deceive themselves by claiming that it hurts too much to be in a relationship, or they may cover this by appearing to do relational things such as Bible studies and events and church services and so forth without ever actually forming relationships which genuinely glory together in the cross of Christ. But Jesus said in Matthew 13 that the wheat, a metaphor for the saved, regenerate people, will have among them the weeds, more famously called the tares, which look like wheat, but ultimately are false. He said in Matthew 7 that at Judgment Day, many who are condemned will defend themselves, and they will defend themselves by saying, I was active in church. And he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. And so the preachers and the teachers of Christ's church, if they are to do their duty, ought to be extremely concerned for their people, because according to Scripture, in all likelihood, some of you right now are not regenerate. And so it is our duty as shepherds to give you from Scripture tests of the genuineness of your faith. And given the choice, I would rather a true believer in Christ nervously test and examine his faith 10,000 times and go to heaven in relief than an unbeliever be deceived and die in a sinful, unforgiven state. We are to call you to examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith to test yourselves, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 13. Now, in my years of pastoral ministry, I've observed that having your faith tested in this way through the preached word, that people fall basically into four categories. First category is the true believer who loves hearing these tests because it provides added comfort, added joy, added relief, added consolation at the grace of God in your life. The second category is the true believer who doesn't love hearing these tests because he's walking in sin, walking in some area of disobedience in areas of life. And so this preaching brings guilt that he's not walking in the manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. And so it creates anxiety and hopefully pushes toward obedience. There's a third category, and that would be the unbeliever who is listening and with fear and trepidation, maybe right now by God's power, beginning the process of trembling before the cross and coming to the point of saying, I need to repent, even though maybe everyone has said for years and years, well, obviously he's saved. He's been in the church his whole life. 
But then there's the fourth category, the unbeliever who is hardened and never believes it's possible to be in the category of the weeds, the tares, and not the wheat. That solely must be a work of the Holy Spirit. So because of the variety of people, there is a necessity to aim the arrows true and to pull the bow back as far as the strength of man and the strength of God will allow, and that arrow must fly with speed and with accuracy. And that's my hope this morning, because every single one of you will fall into one of those four categories. You cannot get out of it. You're in one of them. And so the duty of the shepherds is to periodically issue what I'm calling a faith checkup. A faith checkup, checking in with you that you might examine yourselves, taking stock of what God has done in your life, reassessing the work of salvation wrought by the Lord and making certain. And to give this faith checkup, we have the wonderful text of John chapter 12. So using John 12, we're going to do some tests and we'll do them for the next five weeks. Today's test very simply is, do you love Christ? Do you love Christ? That's our test today. Now, John 12 is a key passage. There's tension now building toward the cross. John chapter 12 has been called by some commentators a saddle passage. It's the, it's the saddle that connects. It's the valley that connects all that's happened in John 1 through 11 now going toward the cross. It really very much is a transitional chapter. John 12 begins just days before the arrest, the trial, and the crucifixion of Christ. Jesus had left Jerusalem when the plot against him had heated up to a fevered pitch. Chapter 11, verse 53, we saw, so that from that day they made plans to put him to death. He left, he went north to Samaria, then to Galilee briefly, and now he is headed back to Jerusalem. He is stopped in Bethany, just two miles outside of Jerusalem, the village in which his friends Mary, Martha, and their brother Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. This is where they lived. And this particular event that we're going to see in the first eight verses of chapter 12 apparently is very important to the Holy Spirit to record for us. It's recorded in both Matthew 26 and in Mark 14, one of the very rare times where something in the Gospel of John is also recorded in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. Each of those accounts include details that are not included in John's account, but the event is very easily harmonized to, to show the entire picture. And the event is a dinner. It is a, a formal event, so to speak, and we come to this dinner, and it's hosted in the home of Simon the leper. More accurately, Simon the former leper, a dinner in honor of Christ hosted by a man grateful to the Lord. Simon was most certainly healed by the Lord of his leprosy since according to the law of Moses, he couldn't be socializing and sure wouldn't be hosting a dinner. And I don't know about you, but if I touch a guy and I'm gonna have a disease that ends my life, I'm probably not going to his house for hamburgers. I just don't wanna be near him. And so he is Simon the former leper and in attendance are Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, the siblings, very likely some other prominent members of the village of Bethany, and then, of course, the 12 disciples of Jesus. Now, I do want to make note that this is not the same account of the woman anointing Jesus in Luke chapter 7. Both accounts speak of a woman anointing Jesus, and both have a host named Simon. But the host in Luke chapter 7 is Simon the Pharisee who hates Jesus. And the host in Matthew 26, Mark 14, and here in John 12 is Simon the former leper who loves Jesus. So two different accounts. The account of Luke chapter 7 happens very early in the ministry of Christ. And the account 
in here in John 12, Matthew 26, Mark 14 happens late in his ministry. In fact, days before the end of his ministry. And this dinner is going to be very, very telling because it's going to show us a, a contrast between two people who outwardly love Christ, who would be considered on the same side, who would be considered to believe the same things. If they were living in 2018, they would both show up at Grace Bible Church on a Sunday morning. And yet one shows a heart of love for Christ and the other will ultimately show disdain and hatred for Christ when his heart is revealed. So let's get into the text. Let's just set this up by reading the text together. John 12, follow along with me as I begin in verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. And this text is going to be very helpful for us to apply the test of loving Christ. We're going to begin a question and we're going to finish that question with three different endings, three different tests. So here's the question we'll begin. Do you love Christ as demonstrated by? Do you love Christ as demonstrated by? And so our first test is, do you love Christ as demonstrated by worshiping Christ generously? Worshiping Christ generously. Now, at this dinner, they would have been reclining in the customary way at a very low table. We, we would think of it as a coffee table almost, a low table in a relaxed position to enjoy a long meal together. This is a meal that can last for hours and hours. There's no Netflix, there's no Amazon Prime, so there's nothing else to do except to just hang out and talk. And so they would be essentially laying on their sides on pillows or mats and and reclined in whatever position is comfortable for them, uh, leaning on one elbow or another and you would be smelling a, a beautiful meal here, these typical spices and herbs and olive oil, freshly baked bread and wine, probably roasted lamb. It would all mix together into what we would identify as what we would call a classic Mediterranean meal. It's a beautiful time together. As usual, Martha is serving, verse 2, and Mary is adoring. That's the pattern that they are famous for in Luke chapter 10. When Martha gets upset at her sister Mary for sitting at Jesus' feet instead of helping serve. But this time, there, there's no value judgment given one way or another. Each is just simply fulfilling their unique role at the dinner. And Mary does something outlandish, something unheard of. She takes a pound, a Roman pound of about 11 or 12 ounces of expensive ointment or oil made from pure nard, and she anoints the feet of Jesus and she wipes his feet with her hair. 
Now, this is an abbreviated account. John does not include the detail which Matthew and Mark point out that first she anointed his head. And what what a message this was sending. What an act of, of love and devotion. Now, I know to us in our culture that seems a little bit odd. I've never come up to you with a bottle of canola oil and said, I love you so much, blah, 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 and poured it over your head. You'd probably take it out of, out of my hand and hit me over the head with it. But in this culture, she was showing adoration. She was showing, in fact, worship. It was a generous act of worship. What was she doing? Well, this oil of nard, it's likely first brought to Israel in the days of Solomon, about 900 years earlier, it was primarily from India. It's extracted from the root of the nard plant. Very, very rare. Extremely expensive. Judas said it would have sold for about 300 denarii. That's about a year's wages for a day laborer. In other words, using the Roman pound of about 12 ounces, every ounce was equivalent to a month of your paychecks. This was very expensive stuff. Matthew and Mark indicate that this perfume was in an alabaster jar. An alabaster jar was an opaque very delicate stone jar carved from one piece of stone that was so delicate and opaque that you could hold it up to the sun and see through it. It was thin. It was expensive. I mean, the alabaster jar alone was expensive in its own right, not to mention being filled with this this extremely rare ointment. The alabaster jar was designed so that you could very, very carefully pour out one drop at a time and you could make that jar literally last for years if you if you portioned it out right. But Mark's gospel says that she broke the jar. Not so she could portion out a, a drop because she had no intention of ever filling that jar again. Never again would Mary use nard for her own purposes, for her own reasons. From now on, this moment would be pressed into her soul as the only proper use for this expensive oil. This was an extravagant gift to Jesus. She wasn't concerned with what anybody thought. Her her focus was on Christ and on Christ alone. I mean, what would this be like? I want you to picture that that we're collecting an offering for for something and to show love for Christ, that somebody wheels in a wheelbarrow full of $100 bills, puts them up here and lights them on fire. What would we be doing? Man, we could have done a lot with that. That's what she did. She just... She just lavishly gave this to the Lord. This was a gift appropriate for royalty and it demonstrated the worth that she ascribed to Christ. I think it's important to note that this was a gift on par with the gifts that Jesus received by the wise men who believed him to be the king of the Jews. Gold, frankincense, myrrh. Now we can add to that list nard, ointment, Now, I mentioned that the other Gospels include the detail that she anointed his head. Mark's Gospel says she poured it over his head. This is extremely, extremely significant. Psalm 133 uses a word picture for the unity of God's people. And the picture is that, quote, it is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. This is hearkening all the way back to Exodus 29, when Aaron, the brother of Moses, was dressed in his fancy priestly garments as prescribed by God and was lavishly anointed with oil 
as the high priest of God. Why is this important? He was being installed as the one who would represent God to mankind and who would represent mankind to God. That's what the anointing was. It, had a, it, it said you have a special mission from God, a priestly mission of intercession, and there's a lavishness to it that goes all the way down even to the garments. What else did this mean? 1 Samuel 16 records the day that God chose his king for Israel when the prophet Samuel anointed with oil a young boy named David and he didn't anoint him with just a little bit of oil. This wasn't with an eyedropper. It says he took a horn of oil. This is an animal's horn filled with oil and he anointed him as the coming king of Israel. And 1 Samuel 16, 13 says that the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. So do you understand that when Mary generously and lavishly anointed the head of Jesus, pouring these many ounces of oil over his head, the oil dripping down his beard and, and onto his clothing like Aaron's, she was treating him like Aaron the high priest. She was treating him like David the king. Jesus, the great high priest who represents us to God and represents God to us. And Jesus, the king of kings and lord of lords, who alone is worthy to rule the peoples of earth. I think the point of this is pretty obvious. Mary evaluated Christ and deemed him worthy of the very best thing she could do for him. Worthy of her breaking open the alabaster jar with abandon, saying, I'm never going to use this for anybody else again. It's only for you. Worthy of treating Jesus like her great high priest and worthy of treating Jesus like her king. And the end of verse 3 indicates that the house was, quote, filled with the fragrance of the perfume. There were about 12 varieties of nard in Jesus' day, ranging from a a, a sweet lavender-like smell all the way to a, a more musky and spicy scent. Whatever variety this was, it was strong enough that it overcame the, the smells of roasted meat and baked bread and wine to fill the house in a way that only king's palaces are filled. And by the way, in just a day or two, Jesus would be riding to Jerusalem to offer himself as Israel's king. And certainly the aroma of this nard would still be lingering on the collar of his garments such that he would even smell like an anointed king. Mary evaluated Christ as worthy of generous worship. Judas, on the other hand, didn't think Jesus was worth it. He didn't evaluate Christ. He evaluated the cost of the oil. That was more important to him. Matthew's gospel tells us that the disciples initially grumbled to themselves about the wastefulness of the anointing, but they would soon be corrected. But but Judas, he took it to a whole different level. He said it aloud. Now, I think we can give the other disciples a little bit of grace. They were probably just thinking from a genuine observation, wow, that's a lot of money that's being poured out there. But Judas wasn't just responding. He had a motive, an internal motive. We're told it was greed. He was the keeper of the money bag. He kept the donations that were given to the preaching ministry of Jesus to support him and the the disciples. And he was a pilfer. He was a thief. And he saw his profits going down the drain. And he watched the equivalent of tens of thousands of dollars being poured out on Jesus that he could have gotten his hands on. And so he makes the excuse, this could have been sold and given to the poor. 
But he completely missed the mark of what the gospel of Christ is about. The gospel is not about trying to feed the poor. The gospel is not about social activism. The gospel is not about trying to correct the ills of mankind. The gospel is about calling people to move out of their sin and to become worshipers of Jesus Christ. Because you have way bigger problems than social injustice. Your problem is that God hates your sin and he's going to do something about it if you don't. And so Judas missed the point completely. Jesus himself affirmed that he is the top priority. He said in verse seven to leave Mary alone. And then in verse eight, for the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. It's very likely Jesus is alluding to Deuteronomy 15, 11, which says, for there will never cease to be poor in the land. And he's not saying don't be concerned with the needy. In fact, the rest of that Deuteronomy 15 verse says, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. He's not saying don't be concerned with him, but he's saying, but Mary has her priorities straight. You've got the rest of time to feed the poor. I'll be gone in 48 days. That's how long they had have Jesus with them. They wouldn't be long. Just a few days ahead was Gethsemane, the trial, the cross, the resurrection, the ascension. And basically they had less than two months with Jesus. Mary didn't cave to social pressure. She didn't cave to peer pressure. Her priority was Christ. I'm going to worship Christ right now at this moment. She wasn't one who would sit in a worship service and be tempted to think about other things She was one who would sit at the feet of Christ and nothing else mattered. Nothing was going to stop her from worshiping Christ. She was compelled to exalt him out of an overflowing heart of gratitude. And I believe a clear understanding of precisely who he was as Messiah, as sovereign God, the son of God, as a king, as a high priest. Now I want to get something straight here. Mary has passed this test of worshiping Christ generously, but this is not an emotion test. This is not the test of feeling something or singing the right song or doing the right works. It is worship characterized by a a compelling desire to ascribe value to Christ, to show that you value him. She gave generously to Christ. She identified him rightly. She placed herself in a lower position than Christ. And I truly believe she would have done anything that Jesus asked. Why? Because generous worshipers obey Christ lavishly and enthusiastically. There's not a sense of foreboding or sense of hesitancy. Well, I guess I have to obey the Lord. There's a desire. Can I put it this way? You will obey Christ to the same degree that you value him. It's really that simple. You will obey Christ to the same degree which you value him, to the same degree of worth which you ascribe to him. So the first test is, do you love Christ as demonstrated by worshiping Christ generously? Here's a second test we might say. Do you love Christ as demonstrated by humbling yourself significantly? By humbling yourself significantly. Nobody comes to God and says, let's make a deal. God doesn't make deals with those that he created. Mary anointed the head of Jesus. Then she anointed the feet of Jesus. And what a message she was sending. She was literally proclaiming the worth of Christ from head to toe. She's saying, you, all of you, you are worthy. 
She did the job of a servant. And remember, we said in, in John 11 that she came from a wealthy family. She had servants. But she did the job of the servant, which, to, which was to care for the feet of the guests. She did it right in front of everyone to come down to the feet of Jesus to minister to him. But we get a detail that is w- w- would make an ancient Near Eastern woman's jaw drop to the ground. She wiped his feet with her hair. She's a wealthy woman in a wealthy family. She probably owns a towel or two. But a towel or a cloth didn't have the personal touch that her own hair had. To a Jewish woman, her long hair was the symbol of her femininity. It was the centerpiece of her beauty. Long flowing hair was considered beautiful and it was very, very, very personal. If you don't think hair is personal to a woman, try touching it without permission and you're going to go away needing an ambulance. It's extremely personal. Isaiah 3 speaks of a woman's hair as indicative of of dignity and honor and glory. 1 Corinthians 11 speaks of the long hair of a woman as being her glory. It's not a commentary on the godly or ungodly length of hair. It's just basically that, that hair is much of what sets apart a woman from a man. God created mankind in his image, male and female. He created them. And so there is this sense of which a woman's hair demonstrates I'm created in the image of God. I'm created as that, that part, so to speak, of humanity that is female and glorious. It is her glory. It's her honor. Back in Isaiah 3, Isaiah predicts a time of shame for Israel in which the captives, both men and women, will have their heads shaved because it causes disgrace and causes shame, the opposite of glory, the opposite of dignity, the opposite of honor. And so for Mary to use what would be very personal and precious to her, listen, I could probably ask you to raise your hands, ladies, I won't, but if you've had six or eight or nine inches of hair cut off, how many women literally cry at that? Because it's part of your glory being cut And yet Mary takes the symbol of her femininity, the centerpiece of her beauty, and she uses it like a towel. Because compared to her, Christ is ultimately worthy. She's using that which is precious to her, the only head of hair she has. She had a thousand towels probably, but she only had one head of hair. And she cleanses the feet of her Lord with it. She got down on her knees, the position of subservience and submission, and she wiped the dirt and the dust from his feet. She rubbed the ointment into his feet with her own hair, making such a clear statement. You are worth so much, and I want to give you all that I have. I'll denigrate my own pride. I'll get down on my knees. I will exalt you. The lower I am, the greater you are. And so she humbled herself significantly. There was no thought of her own dignity. Listen, we don't come to Christ in some dignified manner. We come dirty, we come messy, we come on our knees, we come washing away and wiping away the last vestiges of our own glory, just like Jesus had his feet wiped with the glory of a woman, her hair. There is no such thing as coming half-heartedly to Christ. You don't try Jesus. You come as what the New Testament calls 125 times a doulos, a slave, 
of Jesus Christ or you don't come at all. And this really is the mark of a true believer, not being constantly hung up on yourself, but having a love for Christ which works itself out in love and and in serving Christ's people, his church. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 3, 8, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. In chapter 5, he tells us to clothe ourselves, quote, all of you with humility toward one another. Paul tells us what humility looks like in Philippians 2, beginning in verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. This humility in exaltation and worship of Christ isn't just an attitude. It's something that works itself out in the body of Christ, in the church. This is one of the reasons that God gave us the the corporate body of the church to be in, in vital and real and humble and others first service relationships. This is the believer who's demonstrating the humble heart of a servant who doesn't need kudos and doesn't need consistent motivation. They just serve because they don't matter. And how can you have your feelings hurt when you have no rights? How can you be offended when you're the lowest on the totem pole? This is someone who's a grateful slave of his Lord and Master Jesus Christ. Now, it doesn't always work out that way because we do still fight our pride, don't we? There can be various struggles against humility in the church, fights we must fight. I've named a few of them. We might call one the killjoy struggle. This is struggling against seeing the cloud in every silver lining. Some believers have that issue. We struggle with what we might call the emotionally motivated struggle, striving and serving so that I can get compliments and I can have emotional gratification instead of just because I love Christ and I value him. We might call one the reserved struggle, struggling against being the person who doesn't do much, doesn't give much until this church really figures out how to live up to my standards. We have one we might call the know-it-all struggle, struggling against being the one who always knows better, knows better than scripture, knows better than the collective wisdom of the leadership, knows in 10 seconds that the interpretation of scripture given from the pulpit outdoes the 20 hours that were spent on that word or that verse. Or you might have the trade-off struggle. The trade-off struggle is struggling against the sinful attitude of all serve and all give, but I want something in return from men. I want something in return from people. Instead of, I just want to serve Christ because of what he's done for me. But the joy of Christ, the joy of the church is the satisfied servant. The satisfied servant, the one who glories in being at the feet of Jesus and would do anything for his cause and anything for his glory. We've mentioned a couple of times the hymn, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. I wonder if Mary would have sung, Oh, for a thousand heads of hair to give. Oh, for a thousand ways to worship you. Ultimately, if a professing believer in Christ constantly has a problem with everything, this may betray a lack of humility, which may more seriously bring into question whether or not regeneration actually ever took place. Because by definition, believers in Christ love to lay down at the foot of the cross in humility. The first test is, do you love Christ as demonstrated by worshiping Christ generously? Second, do you love Christ as demonstrated by humbling yourself significantly? 
And the third test is, do you love Christ as demonstrated by thanking him appropriately? By thanking him appropriately. Sometimes in American evangelicalism, it seems that Jesus ought to be just grateful that we would give him the time of the day. I think it ought to be the other way around. The disciples grumbled to themselves. Judas came right out and complained, ignoring the beauty of Mary's gift and and devaluing the worth of Christ himself and Jesus, ever the defender of the true worshiper. He says in verse seven, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Matthew and Mark also give the extended fuller version of what Jesus said. He also said, why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing for me. A beautiful thing, literally a good thing, a noble thing, an honorable thing, the right thing. The other gospels clarify with a little bit more detail that she is preparing Jesus to be buried. She is pouring on him the spice that you would put on a dead body. And this is huge. This is so important. Because Jesus' own disciples, the 12 who were there, they still weren't fully getting the fact that Jesus was headed to Jerusalem to die. How do we know that they weren't getting it? In the Gospel of Mark, three times Jesus predicted his death and his resurrection. And after each of those predictions, the disciples pulled some stunt to show that they still didn't get it. After the first time, in Mark chapter 8, Peter rebuked Jesus for speaking of his upcoming death. Jesus had to say, let's talk about this for a while. No, what did he say? Get behind me, Satan. That's right. I've tried that in counseling. It doesn't work from the pastor's office. The second time he predicts his death, Mark 9, the disciples started arguing about who is the greatest because they still assumed Jesus was going to set up his kingdom right now. Then they wanted dibs on high positions and he calls them on it. Third time he predicts his death and resurrection, Mark chapter 10, James and John pull Jesus aside and say, hey, how about I be the number two guy and brother here will be number three when you set up your kingdom. They were slow to understand. They didn't understand what Jesus meant when he said in Mark 10, 45, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. They didn't get it. But Mary got it. She got it like maybe nobody else in the Gospels did before his death. Not only was she a good listener, Luke chapter 10 says she was a great listener. She sat at the feet of Jesus and hung on every word that he taught. Jesus affirmed his upcoming death here in John 12 by referring to his burial, and he interpreted Mary's act as anointing his body beforehand for burial. And I want you to notice something. He said it right in front of her, and she didn't go, what? No, that's not what I meant. Listen, her silence is deafening. She knew exactly what she was doing. She was doing for him now all she could before he went to Jerusalem. And unlike Peter, she didn't try to stop him. I absolutely can't imagine the emotion she must have felt in performing this final act of worship, knowing that his death was imminent, knowing that, ironically, the one who had raised her brother Lazarus from the dead was now going to die himself. The disciples still had visions of power and future glory and and wealth, and they wanted to sit on all these thrones around Jesus Mary had no such vision. She knew he was going to die. 
She had spent time with Jesus many times before, but this time she gave him all she had because this was her last chance. This was her last chance to serve him and she went all out in humble adoration of the Lord in thankfulness. And this is really our great paradox when we remember the Lord's death. We remember the Lord's death by taking the Lord's table as we're going to do in a few minutes. And the paradox is, is we, we glory and we praise God for his sacrifice of Christ because of the payment for our sin that he made without which none of us would have any hope of being made right before God. We had to have the death of Christ. And yet the death of Christ pains us. It pains us because Jesus didn't just die for you. He died because of you. The, the piercing, the whipping, the torture, the facing of the wrath of God and his, all of his fury, this is what you deserved. And he took it instead Jesus deserves glory and praise and laud and honors we've, as we've sung recently. When he would enter Jerusalem shortly, what should have happened? He should have been taken to the temple and they should have thrown open the curtain to the Holy of Holies and said, God has arrived. Let him be enthroned among his people. They should have done that, but instead he was arrested, beaten, whipped, pierced and crucified and killed. And so when we remember the Lord in communion in the Lord's table, is it a happy occasion or is it a sad occasion? It's, it's both. It represents the inauguration of the new covenant, which is fabulous news. But that covenant was made in the blood of Christ, which is sobering news. And so we, we simultaneously, we, we grieve over our sin, which drove Christ to the cross. But we also taste God's goodness in the seal of the covenant that he made as a result. And so the Lord's table for us is very much a time of thanksgiving to God with very mixed emotions. Dr. Samuel Lucky, a well-known American preacher in the early and mid-1800s, he wrote in 1859, quote, If we have received Christ by faith, we have had a realizing sense of his power and grace as our atoning redeemer to save us from sin, It was at the moment our faith beheld him on the cross, crucified for us, that we felt the pardon and peace with God through him. It was then that Christ crucified became the object of the heart's supreme affections. No object was so lovely, none so endeared to the heart as the suffering Savior seen by faith upon the cross. It was his love manifested by his passion and death that rendered him supremely lovely to the believing heart. Has it ever struck you as ironic that the symbol of the Christian faith is a method of execution? That the cross of Jesus Christ, which is so precious to us, was a way to torture him. So what does the cross really mean to you? Honestly, only you can answer that question. But there should be a sense of wonder and awe and pain and delight and joy and sadness but I would dare say most of all, thankfulness. Thankfulness. The old spiritual says, were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Oh, sometimes it it causes me to tremble, tremble, tremble. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? The hymn by Bernard of Clairvaux, Sacred Head Now Wounded, says, What language shall I borrow to thank thee, dearest friend, for this thy dying sorrow, thy pity without end? Oh, make me thine forever, 
And should I fainting be, Lord, let me never, never outlive my love for thee. How grateful are you for the cross? Only you can answer that. But the answer will determine your eternal destiny. As a matter of fact, this act of worship and humility and thankfulness by Mary was given by Jesus an extremely rare and special blessing. Mark 4.19 said of Mary, And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Clearly, the Lord Jesus approves of and loves this type of adoration. Now, John's gospel reminds us that the leaders of Israel were also plotting the the death of Lazarus in verses 9 through 11 because he was living proof of the resurrection power of Christ. But Mark and Matthew include in their detail text a detail not included in John, something that's happening behind the scenes, the the use of tens of thousands of dollars of nard on Jesus, the sting of Jesus' rebuke, the last straw, it was the final insult, the final frustration to one man. Matthew 26 says, then one of the 12, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. And so when we compare Mary and Judas, the lesson is very clear. Those who appear the same at first will ultimately be completely separated. Completely different. Mary, to serve Christ faithfully all of her days in the church and now to have been in heavenly glory with him for the last 2,000 years. And Judas, as Matthew 27 records, throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. And the chief priest wouldn't receive the money So they bought the potter's field to be used as a burial place for strangers. Jesus called Judas in John 17, the son of destruction who had been lost. And I say this to say that some of you may be Judases. You may have fooled yourself and you're headed toward destruction, but there's one critical difference between you and Judas. Judas was the fulfillment of prophecy concerning the betrayer of Christ. Psalm 41.9, even my close friend in whom I trusted who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Psalm 55 predicts this betrayer. 500 years before Christ, the prophet Zechariah prophesied of this betrayer in Zechariah 11. Then I said to them, if it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter the lordly price at which I was I priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. The critical difference between you and Judas is that for Judas, all hope is lost. But for you, there's still a chance. Maybe a minute, maybe an hour, maybe a day, maybe a week, maybe a year. For Judas... Jesus said in Mark 14, 21, the son of man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. But for you, Hebrews 3 and Hebrews 4 begs, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. 
What is a hardened heart? A hardened heart is one who has acted like they know Christ for so long that they don't have the humility or the wherewithal to admit, I don't know him. And Jesus pleads with you in Matthew eleven twenty eight: 28, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, including church members, including church attenders who are questioning their own heart and I will give you rest. I must make a true statement which makes me sad but it is true. There will, people be, there will be people in hell who attended Grace Bible Church. Don't be one of them. Don't be fooled. Test yourself. Do you love Christ as demonstrated by worshiping Christ generously? Do you love Christ as demonstrated by humbling yourself significantly? And do you love Christ as demonstrated by thanking him appropriately? I've done my part. There's literally nothing else I can do. I hope you will be found in Christ. Our Father, we come to you now preparing our hearts for the Lord's table. Every person in this room fits into those four categories described earlier of the believer who glories in the gospel, the believer who is convicted because they're acting as though they don't know Christ, and there's the unbeliever who we pray is convicted that they have been false, they have been a fraud, and they need to humble themselves and come to faith in Christ. And then, of course, the unbeliever who puts his nose in the air in pride and would rather go to hell with head lifted high than to heaven with head bowed down. And so, Lord, knowing that every category is represented here, we now have the privilege and the honor of coming to the Lord's table to remember the body and the blood of Christ. And so we would ask you to bless this time, this high point of Christian worship, for the sake of Jesus Christ. Amen and amen.